I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Sepp Blatter was the godfather of football. Being a member of FIFA is like being in the secret garden. There's an unspoken code. You can do whatever you want. They wanted to be a force for good. The lines between right and wrong blurred. Wire fraud, money laundering, racketeering, tax evasion. FIFA became a criminal organization. Mr. Blatter! Mr. Blatter! You're looking at 75 years in jail. You are innocent until declared guilty. If I will feel a tsunami coming, trust me, you haven't seen it yet. Qatar! This is the World Cup of Fraud. All our business is all our business. Greed and politicking and backstabbing. FIFA is under fire. It's the biggest sports corruption scandal we've ever had. The impacts go to every corner of the planet. Do these people really care about the game? There were people I knew quite well that had just been arrested. What is my security? If one of us is corrupt, we all are. Let's go, FIFA! Let's go, FIFA! Now you have created a monster. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. What you just heard was audio from the trailer for the new Netflix docu-series FIFA Uncovered, which premiered earlier this month. Rather apropos, given that we are in the midst of the 2022 FIFA World Cup, which has generated a great deal of controversy 
due to its host country, Qatar's human rights abuses and the allegations that it bribed FIFA. On this edition of the show, we'll be discussing the Qatar World Cup and the intersection of politics and soccer. Or, for my non-American listeners, football. Later on in the program, we'll hear from Professor James M. Dorsey, author of The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer. But first, Miles Coleman, the producer of the aforementioned FIFA Uncovered, joins us to discuss his documentary on the seedier side of FIFA. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to have on, Miles Coleman, producer of the new Netflix docuseries that's, I, I would say, just sweeping the internet. I see a lot of people talking about it. FIFA Uncovered, which is very timely, given that we have the World Cup uh, coming up. So uh, if you could, maybe you could tell my listeners a little bit about how this documentary uh, came together and what it's all about. Absolutely. And yeah, before I begin, thank you for having me. Um, and thank you for saying it's sweeping the internet. Last I looked, we were doing pretty well, but it's always difficult when your series comes out on the same day as The Crown. Um, you know, obviously one of them is a once great institution racked by uh, perhaps not the finest moment in its time, um, a, a figurehead leader under fire, and the other one is, yeah, I won't even bother finishing that joke. You saw where it was going a long way off. Um, so where did this project come from? I mean, if you are a, a, a football fan, and forgive me, I'm going to say football, I'm, I'm in London, but, but soccer is equally valid. If you're a football fan and you saw um, the people coming out of a Zurich hotel in 2015 with sheets over their head, it sort of always, I think that moment confirmed to a lot of people what they always knew deep down was that something was not well um, high in the ranks of FIFA. And so I think that was the sort of the genesis of this project, especially for uh, Dan and John, um, my uh, fellow producers on this project. And then I think, you know, one of the other things that I suppose was the genesis of this project was we were always aware that in 2022, with the World Cup in Qatar, the interest in discussing um, the politics behind football would just go up and up and up. Um, and so really, we kind of worked backwards from the release date. You know, what is the kind of documentary that that we thought viewers would want to have available to them a week before the most controversial World Cup in, in history? And what are the kind of questions that they would have? Because for us, it's super important that everyone is kind of on the same page factually, that everyone understands how we got here. So between that 2015 and that 2022 moment, it wasn't like seven years of hard work. We sort of really got underway properly in, in 2019. But that was kind of, that was the germ of the idea. And that was the, uh, you know, where we wanted to end up was was putting out something right about now. So for the sake of my listeners, because I know, I, I think there's a lot of people who will just focus on the game, right? And they may not even know uh, what we're referring to when we talk about uh, 2015 and that scandal. So maybe you could just give, uh, a, a sort of beginner's course on what happened in 2015. Absolutely. So um, this is one of, actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because it's one of the big challenges we had in this 
in this documentary. I sort of like thinking about this. I use this analogy, which is imagine you had to make a documentary or write a book or or do a paper or whatever about uh, let's let's say Norwegian politics. Ninety percent of your audience won't know a thing about it. They won't know the first thing. And then maybe 5% will know one or two things. I'll know a couple of names. And then 4% will know a little bit more. You know, they might know some of the scandals or whatever. And then 1% will know every single detail. They'll know everything about Norwegian politics. They'll know, they'll have been studying it. And, and how do you write or create something that speaks to all of those people equally? That was something that was really important to us, is that this isn't an insider's documentary. This isn't inside baseball. This isn't something that you even need to be a football fan to, to watch, I hope. That this is actually in many ways, a documentary about a, a, a laboratory of politics. There's a documentary about what happens to a political organization when it's kind of left to metastasize on its own, a little bit like a sporting Lord of the Flies. So what was 2015? In 2015, on the eve of the FIFA Congress, which is where the every football association from around the world, so 200 odd football associations, that's the organization that would represent a country's football, uh, would get together and they talk about rules of the game and they talk about, uh, you know, contracts for TV rights. They talk about everything that would affect um, the governing body of football FIFA. They'd all get together and, and you know, they'd have some drinks and and have a good time and, and buddy up. And one of the things that they would do most importantly every four years is they'd elect the new FIFA president. So this is kind of like, this, you know, the head of the UN. Um, if you imagine FIFA as the UN of football Member associations are the are the the countries in there. There's got to be a guy who, or you know, ideally it would be a man or a woman, but it's only ever been a man who sits at the front and and sort of controls the whole thing. And so in 2015, they were about to do that. They were about to vote on the next leader of FIFA, and the incumbent was a man by the name of Sepp Blatter, who'd been there since 1998. And Sepp Blatter was not particularly popular with football fans, but guess what? Football fans don't vote in this election. It's just a member association head. 200 odd votes. And they liked Blatter. And they were going to vote for him anyway. And spoiler alert, they went and voted for him right after what I'm about to tell you happened, just two days later. What no one saw coming was that in May 2015, um, Swiss police working with the FBI went into this five-star hotel in Zurich and arrested a whole bunch of delegates who were due to attend the Congress. And these are some of the wealthiest, most powerful people in world sport. These were members of FIFA. Um, in a few cases, these were people who actually voted um, on the World Cups um, being held in Russia and Qatar. And some of the people who the FBI wanted to arrest weren't in this room. In fact, they hadn't left their home countries for fear of extradition for some years. Uh, one of the people actually fled over the border from Switzerland to Italy and eventually handed himself in. Some of them were arrested in in different countries like Argentina, and and um, there were raids carried out simultaneously in in a few sort of marketing companies in the US. But that's a very long winded way of saying that what happened in 2015 is FIFA went from absolutely no scrutiny, a sense that it could do what it wanted, to the walls coming crashing down in the most dramatic way in in sort of in front of global. TV audiences. But like I spoiled myself, people went and voted for Sepp Blatter anyway, and he was elected to be FIFA president the next day. I realize that's a very long answer to what happened in 2015, but I suppose it's important because that was the real germ of our entire series, what happened that day and how did we get here? Could you talk a little bit more about, th there's so many characters uh, in this story. 
Um, who do you think are the most important? And maybe we should start with talking a little bit more about Seth Blatter and how he got to power and maybe how uh, that led him to, you know, fly too close to the sun, so to speak. Absolutely. And you're right to use the word characters, because even for us as documentary makers, we found ourselves thinking you couldn't have made this up as a script writer. You couldn't have written characters, this kind of compelling, interesting, um, watchable at times, risible at others. So in many ways, our series is really the series that shows the rise and fall of Seth Blatter. And our first episode shows how he came into FIFA and worked his way up and took power um, in a very unexpected way. And then the second episode is how he shrugged off some early difficulties to retain his power. The third is him at the peak of his powers. And then the fourth is how it all comes crashing down and he loses power. And 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 I, it, you know, this might sound a little pretentious, but it's almost Shakespearean in its scope. He is the kind of King Lear figure who, um, who has it all at his feet and it slips away over the course of years. So I, I was going to say real quick, he reminds me a little bit of like, um, in a weird way, he's almost like this weird Charles Foster Kane, Citizen Kane character, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And he's like, you know, like so many politicians or historical figures, his fatal flaw is he doesn't know when to leave the building. If he had left the building in 2011, um, the election before the one I just talked about, perhaps none of this would have happened and it wouldn't have happened in the way it did, but he didn't know when to call it quits. And I think one of the things that we found making this documentary is while some in FIFA were motivated by money, Sepp Blatter was motivated by power. He was he comes from a small Swiss village. Um, he, by all accounts, was a pretty sort of uh, smart, very capable, not very athletic, but very ambitious young man. Um, he worked in marketing first for Adidas um, and then for a watchmaker. Um, he was at one point part of the Swiss tourism campaign, I think, but he was he was incredibly ambitious and he was offered a chance to join FIFA at a time when FIFA was a tiny organization, sort of a few people in a little like apartment in Zurich. And they needed someone to quote unquote, find the money, as in someone who could monetize the game of football. And that's where he came in. And he spent the rest of his life working his way up to become FIFA president. And I think What's kind of what's so interesting about him is despite coming from a very sort of traditional Swiss background from the canton of Valais. So Valais is a quite a conservative, so small, small C conservative, but socially conservative area. There's one apocryphal story. There's a, a saying that Blatter's father told, and I, I don't know if his father said it, but I've heard it used to explain his characteristics. If a visitor is hungry, he can go to a restaurant. If your guest is sleepy, you can go to a hotel. I.e., we don't open the doors to just anyone. You help yourself in this life. And it's very interesting that he comes from this traditionally conservative, small Swiss village, but sort of reinvents himself as the man of the world, as an international tra traveler, and as a statesman. Like, he wanted to win, above all else, the Nobel Peace Prize. He wasn't really... He, he wanted to look beyond just organizing football games in the World Cup and become a statesman. So could you get into that a little bit more? So how does his interest in the political sort of end up colliding? It's almost like politics and football colliding. How does his sort of personality lead to that? And how do we sort of get into the 
I guess, scheming uh, that goes on with FIFA. So when Blatter comes in, like I said, FIFA itself is quite a small um, organization, relatively amateur, not a lot of money floating around. And Blatter's boss and mentor and almost the mold that, that makes him who he is, is a man called João Havelange, a Brazilian industrialist. And João Havelange sees in football and FIFA untapped commercial potential. He's absolutely right about this. At this point, there are no sponsors and you know, football's relatively amateur. And Havelange and, and Blatter, really, they start um, getting in buckets of money from big companies, from Adidas, from Coca-Cola, to sponsor tournaments. This makes FIFA very wealthy. And I think to understand the psychology of Blatter, he's only ever known an upward trajectory. He's only ever known more coming in. You know, it's almost like the kind of apocryphal stories before any Wall Street crash, where you hear the traders say, but they, they only knew growth. They only knew bigger returns year after year. And all Blatter's ever seen is the game expanding in financial capacity. Every year, it seems another country is admitted into FIFA. Um, every year, it seems that it just grows and grows. The World Cup actually grows in amount of teams under Blatter and Avalanche. So he was a man who'd only ever seen the horizon get nearer and nearer. So it wasn't so laughable that he would become some sort of statesman. It wasn't so laughable that, that he could almost step out of the strictly sporting world and into politics. And, you know, this was a guy who wanted, as we show in our documentary, who wanted Israel and Palestine to play a football match for peace. And that doesn't sound like a bad thing. What what I suppose frustrates us as fans is that FIFA's refrain since the 70s onwards has been football and politics do not mix. And if you want to hear that refrain today, you look no further than what's happening in Qatar. FIFA told us just last week that football and politics don't don't mix. They said that in reference to to players protesting about gay rights in Qatar or the lack thereof. Yeah, I think one of the lines that was used by an official was, um, you know, focus on the football, just focus on the football. Yeah. Yeah, focus on the football, which is something that, that FIFA themselves trot out when it suits them and abandon when it doesn't. So... In the same week that Gianni Infantino told us we must focus on the football, he also suggested that Russia and Ukraine have a ceasefire during the World Cup. And what we've seen is almost like the velociraptors in, in Jurassic Park testing the fences. We've seen FIFA leaders testing the fences. Where can they become statesmen? And when it goes badly for them, or when the politics becomes tricky and uncomfortable and occasionally downright wrong, they step back from the fence and they say football and, and politics shouldn't mix. And they offer us these sort of relatively meaningless platitudes that, oh, FIFA's apolitical, even though they try it out when they want to give it a go. So something I want to delve into is, you know, a lot of the eyes are on Qatar right now and, you know, the, the allegations of bribery um, with their bid to host the World Cup. But What's interesting to me is I, I'm assuming um, pro-Qatari elements would say, oh, this is just another of these um, anti-Qatari documentaries. They're going after us. But I actually think this movie, this documentary series, I should say, it's really not simply about Qatar. Or if you want to look at like Russia in 2018 with the World Cup, I don't think it's just about these countries. I think it's dealing with something much bigger. And I, I think in a way it puts the focus more on FIFA even than those countries. Could you speak to that element of the documentary? 
Absolutely. I mean, when we make our films, I'm really glad you say that. Um, when we make our films, what we try and do is offer everyone a platform and a, and a chance to speak. And if someone says, no, I don't want to speak, we don't hound them at their door, but we want to show all sides of it. And I think we do show, you know, we show certainly how the Qataris are very keen to use sport to change and, and modernize their country. And I think, I mean, look, I, I, I commend them for putting up Hassan to speak. I mean, Hassan himself made, you know, I met with him and told him about a project and he was like, yeah, I want to, I want to do this. I want to get the word out there about a world cup. No one forced him to do it. And I, and I take my hat off to them for speaking. And, you know, I, I think some people might watch this and go, oh, this is very unfair towards Qatar. But I think what we're trying to do is as best we can as documentarians present in a sober way, what happened what are the testimonies of the people, quote unquote, people in the room, the people who saw it happen? And and I think you're absolutely right to pick up on the fact that this is about FIFA. One of the things that I hope our documentary shifts in terms of the discourse is ahead of the World Cup, people were sort of critiquing Qatar for things that it simply couldn't change, you know, the climate and 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 things like that. And it, they were critiquing Qatar for things that it could change. For example, its position on gay rights. But I think what, what needs to be emphasized, and this is where I hope our documentary comes in, is Qatar did not award itself the World Cup. 22 men, and they were all men, 22 men voted as a collective unit for the World Cup to go to Qatar. They did so in full knowledge of what the weather was, in full knowledge of what the human rights situation was. And as we show in the documentary, there was a bid book put together by a FIFA inspector that wasn't read by all of the members. No one engaged with the reality of the situation. They made that decision based on what was best for them. So I think when people get angry and often rightly so about the realities of the World Cup being in Qatar, you know, the, the unfairness that if you are a gay fan, you cannot travel with your husband or wife and share a hotel room um, as a married couple. When people get angry about that, I think some of that anger must be directed towards the men that put it there who've largely got off unscathed, I think their name should be everywhere in this. Yeah, and I was just going to add to that. I think the, I mean, the, the Qatari reaction to the backlash um, against them right now, there's one aspect of it that I do kind of understand, and it's that reaction of saying, well, you know, don't don't hate the player, hate the game, right? And uh, I mean, they're sort of right about that. They're not the only ones that have engaged in, you know, um, this kind of behavior with regards to FIFA. Absolutely. And and that's that's a point that um, a couple of FIFA insiders make in the documentary. And they, they do so in relation to Qatar, but also to other countries like South Africa. You know, they say basically when South Africa pays a $10 million bribe and it has been dis, you know described as a bribe in court documents, when South Africa pays a $10 million bribe to Chuck Blazer and Jack Warner, people look at that and go, well, what are they meant to do? They're playing the rules of FIFA. They want to host the World Cup. And the, the way that the culture of FIFA operated at that point is that's how you get a vote. And you can't really blame the countries. You know, the countries don't want to play bribes. I mean, and, and I see that there are, there are limits to that argument, but I think Qatar in particular, they sort of, they feel like they're being attacked for things that they can't change. Like, let's just take the weather. They feel that they're being attacked for the weather. But the reality is they were operating inside a FIFA system that was 
that was simply not taking these things into account. It wasn't reading the bid books. It wasn't, it, you know, it didn't care about the weather. It didn't care about the welfare of the players or the fans. These executives voted on what was best in their personal interests. And Qatar, rightly or wrongly, feel like they're sort of collateral damage in all of this. If you could, could you speak about how FIFA uncovered uh, maybe deals with the issue or is shedding light on the issue of what's been called um, sports washing? Because, you know, in recent years, we've th- seen things like, and I, I know people not would not call this a sport, but sports entertainment, but we see how like a wrestling promotion like WWE is hosting shows in Saudi Arabia for like a billion dollars, I think, each year. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of... Um, Money in sports, I, I think it, it, it corrupts things in a weird way. And there's a lot of countries that are very authoritarian that are sort of wanting to paint a different image of themselves by saying, see, we're, we're involved with these sporting events. We're legitimate. Um, could you talk about how sports washing maybe plays a role in the story of FIFA Uncovered? Absolutely. I think... What we try to show is that sports washing is nothing new. That since 1936 in Germany, and Berlin, since, right? Yeah, since the Berlin Olympics, where you know we we've got footage of athletes Nazi saluting and Hitler um, whipping up the crowd into a frenzy. That, that that this is not something new. I mean, arguably, it's been going on since Roman times where political leaders have used the mass appeal of sports to get out their message. So we don't suggest for a minute that that this is something that was invented by Qatar in 2022. Uh, well, there, there's sort of, Argentina in 1978 as well, right? Exactly. And I think that's a, that's a very important example for this, because that was a sort of a watershed moment for FIFA. So Argentina was given the World Cup before a military junta took over the country in a coup. And... Under, at that point, under Jao Havelange and, and Blatter, by the way, was working at FIFA at this point, they had a decision to make. Are they going to let the World Cup stay in Argentina or are they going to take it elsewhere? And Havelange said vociferously, I am apolitical. I don't care who the leader of this country is. I want to keep it there. And we sort of found archive of, of him saying that. But I've always found that to be a little disingenuous. Why? Because clearly, clearly, FIFA has shown a penchant for working with regimes that are illiberal because they find it easier to work with them. They find it easier to roll in and roll out. They find it easier to impose, for example, their their sponsorship. They find it easier to sort of, as Havelange puts it, keep total discipline during the tournaments. And I think what we've seen with FIFA is, is more than just a sort of an apolitical, the needle swinging left and right. We've seen a real penchant for them courting relationships with nations that are wealthy and looking to use sports to launder their reputation. Because FIFA, despite being a supposedly non-profit organization, they've got a lot of money in the bank and they want more. And I, what I would add to that is, you know, to give you a very good example of, of this, recently Gianni Infantino came out, this was last year, and said he, he was very interested in the idea of a biannual World Cup. So currently the World Cup is every four years. And he said, what about a World Cup every two years? And what was sort of missed in the reporting of this was that the football association who proposed it was the Saudi Arabian Football Association. So it wasn't, you know, this wasn't an idea that Gianni Infantino supposedly plucked out of his head. This was the Saudi saying, we want this to happen. My guess is because they want the World Cup to come to Saudi sooner rather than later. And they're a bit miffed that Qatar has sort of taken the badge of being the first Arab World Cup in 2022. 
And I think the point with all of this is, is sports watching, and here's a point for your listeners really to take away. Sports watching is nothing new. It's been going on since the 30s. It got weaponized in the 70s. And now we're at another turning point. In the same way that we were at a turning point in 1978, we're at a turning point now. And I think sports fans, not just in football, but but everywhere, need to be very conscious of this fact. They need to be watching the WWE and the boxing going to Saudi. They need to watch these things, uh, you know, the Beijing Olympics in 2008 is another good example. Sochi Olympics, Winter Olympics. They need to watch these things and go, are we okay with this? Because sports fans have more power than they realize. Remember, when it comes to sports watching, what states are after is you. They're after you, the audience, your eyeballs, your hearts and minds. So if you were to turn off or to cause a fuss, that's that's more powerful than you might imagine. I also wanted to talk about the character of, um, for people that don't, know this character uh he figures into the story uh very very prominently and that's um muhammad bin hamam could you talk <laughs> talk a little bit about who that is now he figures into the the bigger story of fifa uncovered muhammad bin hamam is a fascinating character very misunderstood i think in the in the world of fifa um for those who don't know muhammad bin hamam is a uh qatari businessman he is not from a royal background, which sort of puts him in a very different position in Qatari society. He's, quote unquote, a commoner. Um, he makes his money in construction and uh, makes an awful lot of money and, and buys a football team. He's very passionate about football. Um, he works his way up the, the Qatari sort of football rankings. And I think one anecdote which I've heard, which actually isn't in the documentary, but I think is very interesting about Ben Haman. I'm just going to tell it quickly because I think it's it's added color that you won't hear in the documentary. In 1995, FIFA had a youth tournament in Nigeria and they decided quite controversially very soon before the tournament was going to kick off that they were going to take this tournament away from Nigeria because of health uh, and safety concerns. And Blatter, who's the general secretary, so that means the most senior employee of FIFA, is tasked with finding a new host. And in 1995, he travels to Qatar. And I believe this is the first time he traveled to Qatar. I might be wrong about that. And he met with Mohammed bin Hammam and the son of the then Emir. And bin Hammam says, and, and bin Hammam's been working in sport for a while. I believe at this point, he's the head of the Qatari Football Association, or, or certainly he's very senior in the Qatar football. He says, we can host this tournament for you. Uh, bin Hammam was also senior at FIFA at this point. And Blatter says, okay. And in a few weeks, they turn this tournament around and Blatter is astonished, stunned. He can't believe how well this goes. And I think this is very much for the Qataris and for FIFA, the first seed planted that Qatar could one day host the World Cup, this sort of very quick turnaround tournament in 1995. And from there, Blatter and, and Bin Hamama joined at the hip. Bin Hamam is essentially the de facto campaign manager when Blatter wants to become FIFA president in 1998. Blatter flies him around on one of his jets, but um, Bin Hammam is, you know, he is instrumental in getting support from all of Asia to support Blatter. Uh, Bin Hammam, there's a very famous story that on the eve of the election, Bin Hammam's son was in a car crash in Doha, and was very fatally, was very nearly killed. And Bin Hammam, when faced with the choice of flying home to be with his ailing son or staying with Blatter, chose Blatter. Um, and sort of he's he talks about this to show his sheer loyalty so yeah, he Hamam, seemed like a loyal ally at first until things started crashing down maybe between the two 
Absolutely. And this is this is one of the fascinating things about Blatter as a political machine, as a political operator, is there were dozens of people who thought that they would one day take over as president of FIFA, that Blatter would one day anoint them the successor. And Bin Haman was certainly one of them. He was someone who he saw as a key Blatter ally. One day Blatter would step down and he would he would go for uh, for leadership. So when Qatar decided to bid to host the World Cup, Bin Hammam, contrary to a lot of reporting and, uh, well, some reporting and contrary to popular belief, Bin Hammam was actually a bit mortified. He thought the bid would be embarrassing because it would fail. And he thought that it was a non-starter because Qatar was too small, too hot, etc. He saw a lot of what, what other people saw in the Qatari bid, that it wasn't um, the most realistic bid. And he basically thought this whole thing was an embarrassment and stealing his thunder from the presidential campaign. So he took a long time to get on board, but he eventually did. And I think he, because he was on the FIFA executive committee that voted for the World Cup, he was always going to vote for Qatar because he's very loyal to his country. But I think he started hearing off the grapevine that actually people who sat alongside him were starting to, you know, think really seriously about voting for Qatar. There's one incident in particular where um, one executive committee member is caught on tape by the Sunday Times um, offering his vote in, in exchange for money. And that person, you know, this is put out in public just before the vote and FIFA have no choice but to ban him. I mean, it's just cartoonishly obvious. What does Bin Haman do? He actually offers to pay this representative's legal fees to appeal this decision. Um, in so doing, ensuring that this guy isn't replaced by a voter who would be unfriendly towards the Qatari bid. So this is a really clear example of where Bin Hammam is not necessarily agitating publicly for the Qatar World Cup. He's not kind of the face of the campaign, but behind the scenes, he's ensuring that Qatar have the best chance for success. And when they win in 2010, when, when Qatar is awarded the World Cup in December 2010, Bin Hammam, I think, has this moment of realisation that Blatter is vulnerable. And Blatter, conversely, has this moment of realisation that Bin Hammam is now more powerful than he is. And there is this elemental battle for the FIFA presidency, the most serious challenge that Blatter faces in his entire reign. And this is something that our documentary sort of exposes uh, out in public for the first time, is when Blatter got very threatened by Bin Hammam, he called a meeting. And this meeting has been long rumoured, but like I say, until our documentary, no one's ever confirmed it. Blatter calls a meeting in Zurich and come, in comes Bin Hammam, and the son of the then Emir, now the man who is the Emir. So a very senior member of the Qatari royal family. And the deal they made was this, that Bin Hammam would step down, he would withdraw his challenge for the presidency, and in exchange, Blatter would stop threatening the Qatari World Cup, that he would stop speaking negatively about it. This is really important because, you know, just last week, Blatter described the awarding of the World Cup to Qatar as a mistake. Yet here he is in our documentary confirming what a lot of people suspect is that Blatter kept it there. And he did so not because he thought it was the best chance for the World Cup or best for FIFA or because he likes Qatari food or likes the Doha skyline. He did it to stay in power. So back to Bin Hammam. And I think this is the part of the story that I find the most compelling from a filmmaker's perspective is Bin Hammam is kind of compelled to listen to his country's senior leadership. He accepts this. He is then banned by FIFA um, for corruption. And, and some people say that um, this was sort of Blatter stabbing him in the back. I don't know if that's true. And he's retired to live a very quiet life. He lives 
in complete beautiful opulence on the outskirts of Doha. And, and let me just, you know, finish this story with, with how we came to meet him, which is, you know, we, we filmed with Bin Hammam in his home. And when you drive to his home, it's really a stone's throw from the Al Rayyan Stadium. That's a stadium of the club that Bin Hammam owned and managed for many years. And it's a stadium which will host World Cup games. And I just want your listeners to imagine what it's like to be Mohammed bin Hammam, who is persona non grata at his country's World Cup. You live your entire life working for football um, in your country. You are banned for corruption, which, you know, uh, I'll let viewers watch the documentary and make their own mind up. But he's certainly a man who um, spread a lot of money around over the years. He's certainly a man who gave financial association, financial gifts to associations and individuals. He lives a stone's throw from a World Cup stadium in Qatar, and he won't be able to go. And there is, again, there is, from a dramatic point of view, there's that that image. It's, it's, it's pretty enduring. That's another thing I wanted to get into. You mentioned that you're letting the viewers make up their own mind. And you are dealing here with a story in FIFA Uncovered, this this broader story of, of questions of corruption, bribery, and whatnot. I mean, it's not like there's not always a smoking gun, right? Like there's not always like the email that like states it out plainly that we find that gets leaked. Um, so how do you sort of deal with, I guess, the murkier elements of the story and maybe the ambiguities that exist? I thought the ending of the, the series was very ambiguous. So could you talk a little bit about murkiness and ambiguity when dealing with this story? There are smoking guns occasionally. Um, one famous example, which we deal with in the documentary, is a leaked photo of forty thousand dollars in cash, um, which is the case which leads to Bin Hammam's um, banning. That's money that was supposedly authorized by him via Jack Warner to vote for him in the presidential election. And occasionally, you get these smoking guns, which are honestly so cartoonish. You, 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 they, they are staggering. I mean, just in the sort of amateurness of putting forty grand in an actual brown envelope, like that would be bad Hollywood screenwriting. But it happens. But you're right; there, there aren't a lot of smoking guns generally. A lot of this happens through wire transfers, through the Cayman Islands, through offshore accounts, and you know the FBI themselves and the IRS and the DOJ had a hard time investigating them. And there are also, you know, Jay, there are there are legal ramifications. We can't just as a documentary without any hard evidence, say we think X person is corrupt or Y person made this deal. There are certainly things that we've been told off the record that if I repeated now your and I podcast, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make it too long online. And so that's a challenge. And I think there are certain instances in the documentary where we present what has happened and we ask viewers to make up their own mind of what they think, whether that's ethical or even, you know, that, yeah, if that's ethical behavior it ties our hands a little as filmmakers. But what I would also encourage your listeners to do is go read up more about the FIFA story because there are plenty of pioneering investigative journalists who have sort of started tugging at these threads and continue to do so to this day. And and I was going to say, I mean, I, I guess Seth Blatter will, will tell people, you know, well, I, I wasn't found guilty of much, you know, or I wasn't found guilty of anything. <laughs> yeah, Blatter, I, I remember someone saying to me in the making of this, um, I said, oh, yeah, we've just filmed a blatter. And they said, how did you get him in jail? And I was like, no, 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 no. He He's not in jail. He's not found guilty of a crime. In fact, at that point, he hadn't been accused of a crime. Recently, Blatter was accused of 
of fraud by the Swiss justice system and was found innocent. That that's the only time Blatter has faced any of these charges, and that's the sort of the the kind of the murkiness of this story, and also the gap between perception and reality is why it was important for us to make this film is to kind of get everyone sort of dispel some of those myths. I just had one or two more questions. Um, the first one is, you know, we we live in a capitalist society, so of course. Um, there's going to be money in something like sports. Um, but, you know, I think your documentary points towards the fact that, you know, money in sports can also have its um, its problems. So how do you think we should grapple with the issue of money in sports and how that may have negative ramifications? Like what, what kind of reforms could we have uh, to deal with th- these kind of things? Absolutely. I mean, we're not Luddites. We're not sat here like the saboteurs in, in, you know, in France with our clogs smashing up the looms because it's going to put the weavers out of business. We think, or at least I think, that international sport is better off if there's money in it because it can encourage participation from more people around the world and so on. And look, I'd be a hypocrite if I said I didn't, you know, enjoy watching top tier sport. I like watching the best players these guys have paid obscene amounts of money and they play in big stadiums. And I can absolutely hold my hands up and say, as a fan, I've benefited enormously from the expansion of, of football and sport more generally. But you're absolutely right to point out that, that sport and money, you know, the, the increased revenue in sport is a double-edged sword. And it's, it's meant a lot of people, I know plenty of people who've thrown up that, you know, have just given up and they've said, right, I'm not supporting the English Premier League or the Spanish La Liga. I'm not watching the World Cup. I'm going to my local team and I'm watching them play and it's going to be 12 of us stead around a really lousy pitch and that's how I'm going to engage with, with the game going forward. I think there are certain things that can be done on a sort of organisational level to reform football um, and, and any sport. I think there should be independent governing bodies, uh, in, independent regulatory bodies for those governing bodies as well. You know, to give you an, an indication of where we are right now, there's a the court for arbitration for sport, which is also based in Switzerland, right? This is where you would have a sporting dispute decided by judges. So if country A says country B fielded an, an ineligible player, they would go to the court of arbitration for sport. The CAS, as it's known, their biggest funder is FIFA. The second biggest funder is the IOC, right? This is a very closed ecosystem. And I think it's beneficial to lots of people to have a truly independent regulatory system basically for too long fifa and ioc and a lot of these sports bodies have existed inside a bubble and have kind of been masters of their own universe and have been left to police themselves and guess what when you leave organizations to police themselves they tend not to um i kind of interested like what what would you what do you think about that topic are there things off the back of the documentary or in your own mind that you think would be beneficial to sport or do you subscribe to the view that sport should kind of be left to its own devices because political interference won't be helpful i'm I'm interested in your thoughts on that i think things like regulation are generally good so i I do think there's you know room for you know politics to get involved in a way but you know there's also that that actually is a good lead into my other question i had for you which is um Something I talked about with a, a mutual friend of ours, um, James Dorsey, who who helped work on the documentary, was, uh, you know, he feels that th- this is a foreign policy move for Qatar. You know, hosting the World Cup for them is about soft power. 
And, you know, in doing so, they're going to have to, in his, from his perspective, probably actually continue pushing um, more reforms. And it's a line that I've heard elsewhere in, in different um, stories about sports and, you know, different regimes around the world that are, well, like, like I mentioned with the, the wrestling and Saudi Arabia or boxing in Saudi Arabia, the, the line I often hear to defend these sports working with countries like that is, well, you know, cultural exchange is good and maybe it'll lead these countries to liberalizing more. Um, and I actually wondered what you think about that argument that people use, because the, I mean, there could potentially be some truth to that. I, I'm I, Because, you know, part of me does think, I think if we were cut off all cultural exchange with, say, a country like China, that, that can also have like negative effects as well. So I'm kind of torn on that issue, but I, I wanted your thoughts on it. I think on the one that that's an argument I've heard a few times. And I think I've heard that, especially from people who are sort of um, perhaps supportive of Qatar, um, uh, the Qatari World Cup. And, and my gut feeling on this is if a country wants to host an international sporting event, first, it should have a human rights policy that adheres to the regulations of that sport rather than the sporting organization granting them the tournament and going, gee, I hope your internal policies change to match what we represent. I think it should be, you know, people say it should be kind of the means to the end, but I think it should be the end <laughs> before the meet, if that makes sense. I don't subscribe to the idea that we should, that, and when I say we, international sporting organizations should be doling out tournaments to countries whose human rights standards and other standards fall short of what that organization would expect in the hope that they change. And the other thing I would say is that football has been involved, like I said, you know, for, in sports watching for a long time. And I, you, let me pluck out a few examples of countries with poor human rights records or areas with poor human rights records being involved in these so-called cult cultural exchanges or sporting exchanges. There was a football team in Chechnya called Anji Makachala, which bought a whole lot of, you know, Brazilian and European players. And basically there was a bit of a plaything for, um, you know, for the, I believe it was owned by the governor of that region. And it lasted for a little bit and the players got sold off again and interest waned and the club is now nowhere. A player like Rivaldo has been, you know, played in Kazakhstan, sorry, Uzbekistan rather, uh, he's played in Angola. Have those countries really changed as a result? You know, there are all these footballers who go and play in China. And I think that's something that you hear bubbling in the background. Oh, it's great that we have these cultural exchanges. But I don't really have any examples that come to mind where that cultural exchange has led to any sort of shifting of the dial in a human rights, in, you know, in, a, real, in a real sense, in a human rights sense. There are plenty of examples where it's done absolutely nothing other than make a handful of people exceptionally wealthy and temporarily garnish the reputation of someone whose reputation shouldn't be garnished. And I hope that sport can be a force for change. I've seen it in my country of birth in South Africa, where the 1995 Rugby World Cup, you know, famously that's become the movie Invictus. I've seen it firsthand where sport can be an incredible vehicle for change. But for my mind, the 95 World Cup is an example of where South Africa had a terrible human rights situation. It transitioned to a free democracy it celebrated, was awarded this World Cup, 
and it became this kind of rebirth of the new nation. That's where I've seen it work well. I've never really seen it work well when a sporting tournament is given to a despotic nation and, you know, we've gone, gee, I, 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 I sure hope that this will all lead to sunshine and rainbows. Yeah, and I was just going to add to that. I, th- I think there's different kinds and levels of cultural exchanges, which is one reason I, I get suspicious about the cultural exchanges argument, because, you know, it's it's one thing to have a cultural exchange with a country, right? You can you can you don't have to completely isolate a country necessarily at the same time. You know, I I, I don't know that you have to let them host the World Cup if they're committing human rights abuses. Do you you get where I'm coming from on that? Yeah, absolutely. The whole point of the World Cup is it is the World Cup. If you say, I want to host, no one voice the World Cup upon you. You bid for it and you say, I want to do it and this is how I'll do it. And if you say that, you need to be ready to welcome the entire world and you need to be ready to welcome that the world um, on a sort of, on a basis of of freedom, of tolerance. You know, I, I see the footage, for example, in Qatar of, of Danish journalists having their cameras moved and threatened to be smashed. And I think, well... That's kind of what hosting the World Cup is. Hosting the World Cup means you're going to have the world's media coming around with cameras. And if you're not ready for that, or if you don't want that to happen, don't offer to host the World Cup. No one's forcing it upon you. And I, yes, so yes, I absolutely see what you mean. And I also think like you're absolutely, you know, no one's calling for pure isolationism. But FIFA and a lot of these organizations, they have charters and their charters ought to mean something. And their charters often say, we respect human rights but they need to be worth more than the paper they're written on. They need to actually be actionable. And and I return to the point about the executive committee members. When they voted for the World Cup to go to Qatar, they didn't all go, hmm, I hope this adheres to our charter. Hmm, I hope that they respect the human rights that are so important to us. They didn't think that. And this vote was made, the decisions were made hastily and based on self-interest. And that's how we're in a situation today. And I think it's good, basically, that it's provoking the kind of conversation that you and I are having that I hope your listeners go on to have. I think it's an, it's a helpful corollary of all of this. But it wasn't their intention. So in closing, I, I guess I just wanted to ask, what do you hope listeners uh, get out of this conversation and uh, just watching the docuseries? And um, I, I guess the other thing I wanted to ask is, uh, are there any characters... Uh, that you were particularly drawn to in making this docu-series uh, that maybe come off better than others. Um, you know, they're, they're, I mean, I, to me, when I watch this docu-series, I have to be honest, I, I feel like I'm looking at a rogues gallery half the time. But is there anyone you think comes off uh, better than the rest? So in terms of what do I hope listeners and, and viewers of the documentary get out of it, I think that there are going to be a multitude of reactions to the documentary into the World Cup, ranging from, I can't wait for the World Cup. I'm so happy it's in Qatar and I don't like this documentary and I don't like what it's saying. I think the reactions will go from that all the way to, I would like to not see a minute of the World Cup and I actively boycott it. And whatever your reaction is along that spectrum, I, uh, my hope is that from listening to this podcast and watching the documentary, people are better informed, that we are all on the same page that we're not going off myths and misconceptions, that we have the sheer sort of weight of facts and information that's out there to help us make our decisions, because I truly believe in informed decisions. And I hope that, you know, off the back of this, people go out and watch it, and then they read the books that have been written. I I stress, 
and I'm very aware of this, our documentary covers 1% of the entire landmass of FIFA and the history of FIFA. There is so much more out there about it. And I hope that um, our series inspires people to to learn more, to read books by journalists like David Kahn, Ken Bensinger, the absolutely irascibly wonderful Andrew Jennings, who passed away um, earlier this year, who was a giant of the of the FIFA investigating world. I hope that people continue to to learn about the subject and get sort of as passionate as we are about it. In terms of your second question, which I like a lot, which is, you know, who are the people that, that come off well or have sort of been drawn to? You know, there, there are a few people in this that um, I didn't see saying yes to an interview. And I respect enormously that they did. And I'll, I'll focus on one, which I sort of, I'm, I could choose many, but I, I I enormously respect Jerome Valk for sitting down and talking with us because um, he's someone who was in sort of, I mean, he was in the midst of legal battles at the time of recording. He is someone who's been found guilty of fraud. He's now appealing that decision. But, you know, if you'd asked me to put a bet on it, I would have bet on him probably saying, no, but I think it's really important that he he stepped forward and spoke. And I don't think everyone's going to love what he had to say, but I admired his candor and his honesty. And, you know, he sort of called it how he said it. And he said, look, you know, what, to give you one line, he said, if you think FIFA can be run with the ethics code, forget it. It's not possible. And after two years of being fed some pretty specious, uh, thinly veiled excuses, it was nice to hear someone basically calling it how it is. And I was sort of particularly drawn to his his story and his life arc because, you know, he started his career as a driver, uh, as a chauffeur for sort of executive events. And he met some FIFA people and saw their life and realized he wanted a piece of it and sort of, and worked his way up bit by bit. And he was very sort of candid about the fact that he always thought he could wake up and it would all go away, that he lived with that kind of imposter syndrome with that loss anxiety every single day because and and i think that's really important because i think what shaped the culture of fifa was this mentality like it can't be this good forever it just can't so i need to take and eat and drink and imbibe and enjoy as much as i possibly can because tomorrow by ozymandias it could all come crashing down and that shaped a lot of the culture and it certainly shaped the two bids for russia the 2018 2022 decisions the idea that this is the last payday and we're just going to go to town well, I want to thank you again, Miles Coleman, for coming on Parallax Use. I really hope that everyone checks out uh, FIFA Uncovered. We didn't even get to cover all the characters. I want to talk about Chuck Blazer, but maybe another time. There's so many. It, this is just a fascinating story. It's almost like um, it's almost like sports meets true crime. So I, I think that's really popular right now. Uh, and it's just a great docu series to watch. It's on Netflix now. Um, and I want to thank you again, Miles Coleman. Thank you very much for having me. It was great to chat and um, yeah, much appreciated. Next up, Professor James M. Dorsey, author of The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer on the 2022 World Cup and his rather unique take on the subject, which looks at it from the angle of Qatar's soft power foreign policy approach. We'll discuss what the World Cup means for Qatar, 
covert information warfare against Qatar by other Gulf states, and how the World Cup is already brewing up regional tensions between Qatar, Israel, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. All that and much, much more in the conversation to follow with Professor James M. Dorsey. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I've enjoyed speaking with in the past, James M. Dorsey, author of the book, The Turbulent World of Mideast Soccer, and also the Mideast Soccer blog and podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to see you again. So, James, if you could, I guess where I wanted to start uh, with this one, I want to get into the controversy around Qatar hosting the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Uh, but first, what, what is the significance of this? How did it come about? And um, why did Qatar want to host uh, the World Cup? What, what was in this for them? Well, the significance, of course, of this is that it is the first such tournament in the Middle East and in the uh, in the Arab world and in the Muslim world. Uh, and as a result of that, it has uh, it, it, it first of all reflects in many ways the um, the shift in power. So moving from a unipolar to a multipolar world and what that means in terms of find, of values that not always are the same and norms and moralities that not are not always the same. I think that's the first significance. The second significance is that most major sporting mega events leave a legacy of um, white elephants and debt. This is a, a World Cup that's going to leave a legacy of change, of social change. Now, you can say the change doesn't go far enough. The change has not been all inclusive. Um, whatever it is, that does not change the fact that there has been change. Uh, and I think that is significant. Um, the other thing that this has brought to the, to the fore, and that's maybe less positive, that one has to uh, divide the criticism into what was genuine and legitimate with regard to human rights, with regard to um, uh, worker rights, and with regard to issues of sexual diversity and gender diversity, even if that is a much more complex issue, because it's in, in terms of human rights it's, and worker rights, it's government. In terms of uh, issues uh, involving sexual diversity or gender diversity, that's something that's popularly very deeply felt. And therefore, in some ways, the dynamics are different. Now, the final, final answer to your question, why did Qatar do, do this? Qatar did it for a variety of reasons. Many of those reasons the same reasons that others want to host such events. What makes Qatar exceptional and also explains why it was willing to spend a lot more money 
than other countries may have been willing to spend on something like this is it's part of its defense policy. Soft power is Qatar's defense policy. This is a country of 300,000 nationals sandwiched between two behemoths, Saudi Arabia and Iran, both of which are partners, friends, uh, but also potential threats, as we saw in the three and a half year uh, boycott by the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, or led by them, uh, a diplomatic and economic boycott of Qatar between 2017 and 2021. It doesn't matter how many weapons Qatar buys. It doesn't matter how sophisticated those weapons are. Qatar cannot fight a conventional war with any chance of survival. So it needs to ensure that it gets help when help is needed. And for that, it needs to create soft power. It needs to make itself relevant to the international community. It needs to the degree possible build empathy um, uh, in public opinion so that there would be support for for coming to its aid if that were necessary. So in regards to the backlash, um, maybe we could go through the controversies. I know uh, that a lot of people are upset uh, with the treatment of migrant workers, LGBTQ people in uh, Qatar. Uh, what, what's the basics of the backlash? And what's the question of this being, I know you brought it up, uh, this idea of, is it always been fair that the criticisms or are some of the criticisms unfair? I know uh, Qatar has responded um, in different ways to this. Okay, uh, let's keep in mind Qatar is an autocracy. That's what it is, whether you like it or not. <clears throat> it may in some ways be an enlightened autocracy, but nevertheless, it is an autocracy. It is not a democracy. Are there human rights issues? Absolutely. Um, are there problems with the judiciary? Absolutely. Um, issues of freedom of expression? Access all of these issues. Uh, workers' rights, no question about it. And LGBT rights. Now, the two points I would make is, one, there is a vast difference in what is achievable and what uh, for which there is um, public, a potential public support between issues of migrant workers and issues on LGBT. And I think you have to keep in mind, because Qatar is ultimately a conservative society. And the government, certainly with the World Cup, walks a fine line, it walks a tightrope, in which it has to balance a significant conservative, or the, what a significant conservative segment of the population is willing to accept and what not with the demands that the World Cup puts on it. In the case of issues of gender diversity, Qatar is not the only country. The vast majority of the Muslim world is very hostile towards LGBT. Even in countries like, for example, Indonesia or Turkey, Muslim majority countries, major Muslim majority countries, where LGBT 
or, or, or same sex is not legally banned, it's not socially accepted. And in a country like Qatar, most probably what would happen if you were to legislate this, those rights, they wouldn't be obeyed. So with other words, that has consequences for how you try and initiate a process of change. The problem with a lot of the uh, debate about Qatar is that all of these legitimate issues and justified issues in some, at times got marred or blurred by approaches that were biased, that were uh, bigoted, prejudiced, and also sour grapes. Now to deal with the sour grapes first, because Qatar views this as its soft power policy, and, and it's got multiple soft power attacks, sports is only one of those, uh, because uh, it's part of its defense strategy at the end of the day, it was willing to spend a lot more. And those that lost out to Qatar in the bid, uh, there's a lot of sour grapes among some of them. In terms of the bias, the prejudice, uh, and uh, uh, the bigotry involved, uh, that falls into two categories, if, in my term. <clears throat> so the arguments of they're too small, they're too taut, uh, they have no legacy. Who determines how big you have to be? Uh, climate? Sure. Would have been impossible to play this in the summer. So you had to move it to the winter. The scheduling problems involved in that are European problems. And they had 12 years to deal with it. So it's hard to have a lot of sympathy for that. Legacy, Qatar won its first international Asian tournament in 1992. It's won a number, of, sure, it hasn't played in the World Cup before, but it's won a number of those since then, including the Asian Cup. So what constitutes legacy? The second part of this blurring, if you wish, has been uh, expressions of, I would almost say by some in Europe, of supremacy, of wanting to impose values. Um, and uh, I think part of the problem is that those that are genuine human rights, labor rights, gender diversity activists, really should have distanced themselves from those whose um, motives may not may be ulterior, ulterior. So if you could too, um, and I, I don't know what you think about this, but I, I feel like th there's always been debate about um, Qatar and things like human rights there, LGBT rights, but I feel like it's been much more amplified um, with regards to the World Cup, I feel like a lot of focus, at least here in the U.S., the last few years has more so been on, uh, say, Saudi Arabia. Um, so, what? Why do you think now we're all focusing on Qatar? Is it just the World Cup, or is there other elements or characters? Well, I think that, I think there are two reasons here. One is the World Cup. You know, the World Cup was a handle that you could capitalize on, and. You know, I don't think that human rights groups, whoever else who used that handle to focus on it, 
uh, were wrong in doing so. I think it would have served them better had they used Qatar or placed Qatar in a more re, in, a, in a broader perspective, uh, rather than seemingly single it out. So a lot of the problems, or all of the problems, frankly, that were raised with regard to Qatar are true for the rest of the region. And that should have been made much more clear. Uh, some of the issues go far beyond the region. So if you take the issue of recruitment fees that migrant workers have to pay, there have been a number of ish, uh, stories in Britain that have revealed that in the agricultural sector with migrant labor, as well as in the care and health sectors, similar recruitment fee problems exist. So I, I think that's one part of uh, one 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 part of all of this. Um, the other part of it, I think, is that the you know Qatar's been in some ways an an idiosyncratic state. It has followed its own course. Uh, that was, for example, in foreign policy, uh, in wanting to maintain relations with everyone, good guys, bad guys, everyone. And that has sparked a lot of opposition. And it, it sparked a massive, you know, it sparked the, uh, uh, the economic and diplomatic boycott, but it also sparked a massive covert information war. And so a lot, you know, it was, you had to be very cautious in, uh, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff in terms of what information is accurate and what information is not accurate. Uh, on top of that, of course, you had problems with media reporting that may, very, that may not have been intentional. In other words, it was not necessarily that the media was on a war path. But uh, if you go back to the history of the number of deaths, for example, among migrant workers allegedly working on um, World Cup-related construction projects, the first figure that was bounced around was a figure of 4,000, which essentially was a trade union, uh, a projection by the trade union there would be 4,000 deaths by the time the World Cup comes, come, comes around. It was never quite clear what that figure was based on, but it was a figure that everybody latched onto. Um, you then had the figure of six and a half thousand, which really covered much, many more deaths over a longer period of time than were related to the uh, to the World Cup, and in the end, the Guardian, which ran with that, backed down from from that as a matter of principle. But nonetheless, the the figure stuck. Fact of the matter is, we don't really know how many people died. Uh, the Gutteries have not been all that transparent about this. Uh, the information coming out of the labor supplying countries is mixed because they have an interest in exporting labor and having the foreign currency remittances and easing uh, labor market pressure in their own countries. Uh, and also because one out of, and this is even the most militant of work, 
worker rights groups point out, um, one out of two deaths among migrant workers are certified either as cardiac or as natural causes. And it's basically because that way they can uh, avoid an autopsy and just get the, you know, get the process done. Uh, so as a result, the fact of the matter is we don't know. But a lot of this stuff has started to lead, you know, let its own life, if you wish. You, you mentioned, what did you mean by covert uh, sort of information warfare? I, I was just, just to clarify on that, what did you mean? Or Look, it, it ran the gamut. Uh, the United Arab Emirates uh, hired a basically helped create a company in the United States staffed by former senior treasury officials that really had to, whose, whose uh, tasking was to deal with the media and, 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 and generate anti-guttery press. Uh, another example is the creation of a, uh, fake, of a fake NGO in Norway that got UN accreditation with offices in Brussels and Geneva uh, that had its own uh, human rights ranking. And if I co remember correctly, the United Arab Emirates ranked number 19 or something like that on the human rights in index and Qatar ranked number 96. So it, you know, those are just two examples of the length to which Qatar's detractors were willing to go to sow misinformation, undermine uh, Qatar, undermine its hosting of the World Cup, and so on. Has Qatar been doing that as well? I mean, like, is sure. there biases maybe absolutely. in outlets like Al Jazeera? Ab sure, absolutely. Uh, not so much with Al Jazeera, frankly. Uh, I mean, you know, Al Jazeera, certainly Al Jazeera Arabic is a little bit different, but Al Jazeera English is a quality product. Uh, you know, you can criticize them that they they have run stories on migrant labor in in in, in Qatar, uh, but you know they've lost run less stories maybe than the BBC or this or CNN did, but they have run such stories. Um, if I, I remember in one case, uh, I, I forget what the technical term for it is, but that the Qataris basically with I think it was Alistair Campbell, um, Tony Blair's. Uh, when he was prime minister, his uh, his spokesperson, who uh, set up a fake fan blog uh, in Britain. So sure, the galleries have. I don't know that the galleries have been involved in it on the scale that particularly the UAE has been involved in this. But sure, it's not that they have totally clean hands either. I was going to ask too, just to get out of the way. I know one of the big claims that we've been hearing a lot is, oh, this 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 hosting of the World Cup is a result of bribery. What, what do you make of all that talk? Look, I was Johnny come lately to uh, the conclusion that Qatar had, uh, that there had been wrongdoing in the Qatari, uh, uh, in the Qatari bid. I was Johnny come lately, not so much because I thought, no, they wouldn't do that, they're perfectly capable of doing it. And let's face it, it's a, Qatar is in a part of the world where the sense is you can buy anything and they have the money to do so. Now, having said that, there's a uh, counterintuitive way of looking at all of this. So with other words, yes, 
there's no doubt in my mind that there was wrongdoing, bribery, whatever involved. But to be fair to the Gutteries, that's the way World Cups were won. You know, and then it happened, you know, it happened with the South Africans who spent, who's paid $10 million to the Caribbeans for Caribbean votes. It happened in 2006 with Germany. Gata won its, its hosting rights at the wrong time at the, in the, and, and the wrong place. Because it, it won those hosting rights at a moment that FIFA's worst corruption scandal had erupted. And in some ways, it became the, Gata became the eye of the storm, if you wish. Now, you can counterintuitively argue, and I would make this argued on, uh, uh, on a number of issues, that Gata actually did everybody a service, but paid a very heavy price by becoming the catalyst of it. It also was the catalyst for human rights policy in FIFA, whether implemented or not being a different question. It was a catalyst of reform of the way FIFA selects World Cup hosts. Now, was that what Gata intended? And was it willing to pay the price it did for, for having been at the, at, at the center of all of this? Absolutely not. You know, it, this is not what it planned. This is not what it intended. And this is not what it wanted. But nonetheless, in some ways, it did help. Uh, uh, it did lend a helping hand, and not an insignificant one. So, can we talk about how uh, Cutter has uh, essentially responded uh, to the sort of backlash? Because I think, in some ways, they've they've said, "Well, we're open to the criticism," but they're also feeling as if uh, there's a double standard in how this is talked about. Well, I think there are phases here. The first phase was put my head in the sand when I, you know, I'm, I'm an ostrich, put my head in the sand when it's all over, it'll all be, it'll all be over. You know, when I pull my head out of the sand, it'll all have blown over. And even, you know, there were people who advised them that that would not be the case. They uh, would be, um, uh, they would have lost the high ground. They would be on the defensive. It was a mistake not to respond. But once they started to respond, they actually started to respond very constructively. So they engaged with their critics. Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the ILO, various others would come into Qatar, would consult with authorities, would work with them to draw uh, up model contracts, standards, what have you. And this is in a region in which you, if you are a local human rights activist, you're either behind bars or three feet under the ground. And if you are a, a foreign uh, uh, critic, you're definitely not let into the country and you may not even be let onto a plane flying into the country. So that was, you know, that was unprecedented. They have enacted a fair amount of um, labor reform. Again, there's more that they could do uh, they could have been far more proactive than they were, rather than being seen to be dragged into this. But nonetheless, the reforms have been enacted. Uh, they could have done more to try and get proper implementation. And let's be clear, implementation is not only a problem on uh, 
labor-related issues. It's a problem across the board in Qatar, partly because it doesn't have the bodies. Um, so uh, I think what you're seeing now is uh, a much more assertive, less compromising uh, uh, response to all of this. And I think that that's one a product of, uh, you know, assuming all goes well in the next weeks, they've pulled the World Cup off. There's a lot more self-confidence uh, there, but it's also indeed double standards. So, you know, Russia had the political problems. It had the LGBT crackdown and nobody was, you know, sure there were people who spoke about it, but none of the concentrated pressure or calls for boycotts or statements, you know, in terms of the jersey that you wear during the World Cup by national teams competing in the finals. Uh, and that was only a few years ago. That was 2018, right? 2018, right. So, you know, the, the, the notion of double standards is not incorrect. And what that does is it undermines genuine and legitimate efforts to push the countries to go further. So if we can delve into that a little bit more, uh, if people are hoping to see more human rights you know, reforms, LGBTQ reforms in Qatar, do you think Qatar is going to go through with reforms while the eyeballs are on them? Or you know, is it going to sort of walk back after the attention's off them? There's a lot of fear, particularly in the more militant uh, activist circles, that, the gut, that this is all a show and that once the big show is over, the gutteries are just going to roll it back. If my assumption is correct that this is about soft power and about defense policy, the gutteries have every interest in maintaining the reforms that they have done and actually have an interest in uh, going further in those reforms as far as they do not create a popular backlash or threaten the, uh, the governance system, the autocracy as such in the country. So with other words, rather than there, there being that threat, I would argue if properly approached, there, it creates opportunity for activists. So in terms of what's happening right now with the World Cup, I mean, we're uh, two days away from, from the first game. Uh, you just uh, wrote an article, uh, U.S. slowly walks punitive measure against Saudi Arabia as regional tension spills into Qatar World Cup. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that article and particularly the, the regional tensions that are spilling out involving, I believe, Israel and Saudi Arabia and Iran as well. Right. Okay. So the article overall was about two things, developments within the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And it was indeed how regional tensions uh, threatened to sp uh, spill onto the, the pitch during the World Cup. The regional tensions are um, several fold. One is Qatar, like any other host state in the world, has to accept fans from everywhere, whether or not it has relations with that country, whether or not it has good relations with that country. So in this case, it has to accept, it has to accept Israeli soccer fans. Qatar and Israel have informal relations. In fact, 
worked together on a number of issues, including uh, the, uh, the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, but they do not have diplomatic relations and Qatar has so far refused to follow in the footsteps of the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, that in recent years have established diplomatic relations with Israel. And so what you're getting is rough, the expectation is 20,000 Israeli fans will be attending World Cup matches in, in, in Qatar. They're gonna be coming in on chartered flights from Doha, from Tel Aviv to Doha, to the best of my knowledge, the first ever. Uh, and there will be Israeli diplomatic consular personnel in Qatar to deal with whatever problems that may or may not arise. Now, the presence of Israelis certainly on that scale in Qatar has re received a, a, a divided reaction among the Qatari population. Some of them have welcomed it. In one case, a very prominent former face driver described the Israelis as brothers and Qatar as being their country. And on the other, uh, on the opposite end, there's been outrage over those kind of remarks. Yeah, and there, there was like accounts on, I think, Twitter that were uh, saying that, that um, you know, those remarks were giving into the Zionist entity and betraying Palestinians and things of that nature. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, that there could be no form of, uh, of welcoming as long as Israel's policies towards the Palestinians continue. So that's one area. Another area is Iran. The Iran International is a Saudi-backed, London-based satellite television station that focuses on Iran, has been uh, covering the mass anti-government protests in Iran over the last two months very extensively, and has become a, a, a point of irritation, if not anger, uh, to the Iranian authorities who view or, or try to project the uh, protests as being fomented by Saudi Arabia, by the United States and Iran. Uh, the uh, Iranian, the commander of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards has threatened Saudi Arabia if it continued to support that station. And um, British police most recently have advised two of, the, uh, of Iran International's journalists that there was a plot to kill them, an Iranian plot to kill them. So Iran, so Qatar, uh, basically to appease the Iranians, and also to avoid any 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 incidents in Qatar, has refused to accredit the um, uh, the uh, Iran International for the World Cup. Now all of this takes place at a moment at which. Uh, the Americans have, warned, have said that there is credible information that the Iranians uh, uh, plan to attack Saudi Arabia uh, in a bid to distract from, away from the attention away from the, the protests. And you saw two US B-52s fly over Middle East skies in, in a message that was designed to deter Iran. And it comes at a moment at which uh, five rounds of, I think five, five, five rounds of Iraqi-sponsored Saudi Arabian, Saudi Arabian, Iran, Iran, uh, Iranian talks uh, that were designed to try and figure out ways to prevent the differences between the two countries from spinning out of control have broken down 
because of the nature of the new Iraqi government, which contains major factions that are aligned with Iran. One thing I wanted to get into before we start closing out is, I think a lot of people, especially in the US right now, have very visceral reactions uh, to some of the abuses that have gone in, on in, in Qatar. And I, I think your view of all this is very nuanced, but I'm assuming there's going to be some people that may listen to this that think uh, he, it's, it sounds like he's going maybe easy on Qatar. What do you say to those people that w- would maybe try to argue that with you? Like, what, what do you think they're missing? Well, first of all, I, let's face it, Qatar, for good or for bad, has become one of those states which provokes a visceral reaction, sort of like Iran, probably Russia today, uh, possibly Turkey. You have a view on that country, whether or not you have any interest in it, whether you've, uh, but you just have a view and it's, it, it evokes emotions. So uh, that's the first thing to say. The second thing that I would say is, um, I believe that I've been fairly, no, not fairly, you know, I've been very critical of the Gadris, but I've also tried to be fair and accurate in my criticism. Uh, and that is to, rec- you know, that is, you know, to recognize what they have done and to recognize what they have not done. Uh, it's not a question of being apologetic towards the Gadris. I have no stake in this one way or the other. Um, the one, but the one thing that I will say is, it, you know, we spoke before about um, the Gutteries becoming more assertive and less receptive of the criticism. The uh, fact of the matter is that even though Gutter is an autocracy, it has no freedom of expression. It has no freedom of the media. It has been willing to tolerate both domestically and internationally expressions of criticism. So to give you an example, and I was quite, it was fascinating to watch. About two months ago, Georgetown University in Qatar held a webinar on the the World Cup. And there were some well-known prominent uh, Western academics that uh, are at universities, foreign universities based in Qatar, but there were two Qatari women. Uh, one of them was the dean of a, a social sciences humanities faculty at the Hamid bin Khalifa University, and the second was another uh, Qatari intellectual academic. And what struck me about what they said was their narrative was from A to Z human rights. Not just women's rights, not just workers' rights, but human rights as such. They felt very comfortable, these were guttery nationals, to publicly speak about it and have that be their narrative. Now, does that mean that Qatar is going to walk the walk and not just talk the talk? Absolutely not. But the fact that they felt comfortable to make that their narrative, I think, is significant. And that's something one should recognize while at the same time noting that Qatar is not going to act on any of that. Also, uh, I just had two more questions. I guess um, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned earlier about the World Cup within the context of 
a world that is moving from maybe a unipolar model to a more multipolar world. You know, there's a lot of debate over that term now, multipolar. And I see some people try to say that this is just a term used by, you know, propaganda outlets. But I, I know of many academics use the term multipolar world. So what what do we mean by a multipolar world within the context of, of uh, what we've been talking about with the World Cup and geopolitics? Look, I think, first of all, there's no question about the rise of China. And uh, no question about the, the fact that China asserting itself. You said um, China is what? Asserting itself. So as we go forward, minimally, we're going to have a world in which there are at least two superpowers, the United States and China. It's an undeniable fact. It has nothing to do with ideology. It has nothing to do with what I may like or dislike. It simply is a fact of life. Ultimately, there's no doubt in my mind that India will be a player. On the other hand, you could argue that with the invasion of Ukraine, Russia has removed itself from the equation. But I think there's another part to this. And that is that the agency of middle powers, if you wish, Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, Turkey, for example, Brazil, South Africa has been significantly enhanced. And they're going to be, you know, they may not be the global powers on the level of the United States or China, but they're going to be players. I think that's what we're talking about when we're talking about a multipolar world. And just to reiterate, you're saying the reason that we're hearing more talk of a multipolar world is because of the significance of the rise of China. Well, because of the facts of the ground. China's a major power today. You may not like what China is. I certainly don't. But that doesn't distract from the fact that they are a major player. Uh, uh, India, no doubt, has that potential and ultimately will be that. You know, it's more populous than China is. With other words, ultimately a bigger market. So then uh, closing out our conversation, what do you hope my listeners get out of the conversation we've been having here for the past, uh, I don't know, 40 or so minutes uh, concerning uh, the World Cup and, uh, you know, how this relates to, you know, international relations and uh, global politics. What do you, what do you think the, the big takeaway should be for uh, people listening to this conversation? Well, I mean, what I, you know, if, if, if I have impact with this conversation, what I would like the impact to be is that people have a more nuanced understanding and on the basis of that, form their own opinions uh, and make their own decisions, whatever those decisions may be. You know, so I'm, I'm not advocating anything, nor am I in try, attempting to impose an, uh, a, 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 spe- a specific view. I'm, you know, based on simply my experience. Uh, I've been visiting Qatar since the 1970s. And so on the principle of Socrates, the more you know, the less you know, whatever knowledge I have, sharing that and in, 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 in a sense, if you wish, empowering people. Well, James M. Dorsey, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work? Um, maybe you can tell them a little bit about your podcast and uh, how they can keep up with your writing. Thank you for asking that. Uh, I write a syndicated column that I distribute via uh, Substack 
I also have an audio and a video podcast. Uh, the best way to do that is to uh, subscribe. Go to my website, which is www.jamesmdorsey.net. Subscription is free. However, and I'm determined to maintain it, uh, 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 maintain the free subscription because that allows me to uh, significantly enhance my distribution. But it does help for whoever is able and willing to do so to become a paid subscriber so that I can maintain it uh, uh, on a free basis. Thank you again, James M. Dorsey. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Miles Coleman, producer of FIFA Uncovered, now available for streaming on Netflix, and Professor James M. Dorsey, whose work you can follow at jamesmdorsey.net. Be sure to check out his vlog and podcast, the turbulent world of Middle East soccer. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I've added some new bonus content on the Patreon page, including my appearance on the Varn Vlog Midterm Election Special. Also, I'm starting the Discord back up, so if you'd like an invite, hit me up. ParallaxViewsPod at ProtonMill.com And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerry Mike to Parallax Jerry with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.